Well, it really was a rotten day for the Prime Minister yesterday. I think Ant and Deck rather caught the mood on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, last night. Yes, they really did. Let's have a look at them. Where do we get it? Um, I've got it written down somewhere, that where we got it. Um, oh, uh, forgive me. Uh, we got it... Uh, uh, for forgive me. Uh, we got it... Uh, uh, forgive me. Um, we got it uh, in... Poundland in real. Oh, <laughs> of course. Every time. <laughs> well, I thought that was very funny, because it was a rotten day, he lost his notes, and for 20 seconds or more, he was flustering, not the Boris we've seen before. And this, of course, following a pretty rotten few weeks, during which support for Boris in the Parliamentary Conservative Party has slowly but surely been draining. Now, he's there for a purpose. He's there because of optimism and boosterism, and he was there to win the election after the miseries of Mrs May as leader. He was never there because Tory MPs liked him, because generally they barely knew him. But now we've seen a series of unforced errors, for example, over parliamentary standards that have shown him to be very, very out of touch with public opinion and out of touch with about half of his party. At a blizzard of U-turns, amidst some very unconservative policies, raising taxes, the state getting bigger and bigger. And now it's not just the Parliamentary Party muttering, no, it's large sections of the media and the public. They're asking questions and the rumour mill, goodness gracious me, the number of briefings that are coming from within the Cabinet, from within number 10, none of this is good. I think it all comes down to one basic problem. It is a complete lack of leadership. You see, following what focus groups do, following what short-term opinion polls say, is actually an act of followership as opposed to an act of leadership. And I've always said, and those that have watched this programme before will know, I've always said, you know, he's a cheerleader and a very, very good cheerleader. He's good at waving the pom-poms, cheering everybody up, but he's not necessarily a good, strong leader. And then yesterday happened. Let's remind ourselves of just how bad it was. So with, with safer streets, uh, with great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband... Uh, uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. People will have the confidence to stay nearer the place they grew up. And Tony, yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, uh, to, to Peppa Pig World. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been anybody who's been to Peppa Pig World. <laughs> Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Well, I have to say, it's the kind of thing that Boris used to do and we all used to laugh, but we're not laughing now because, frankly, it wasn't only unfunny, it was, frankly, cringeworthy. That's certainly how I felt about it, how everyone I spoke to felt about it, and clearly the audience at the CBI did as well. And the whole speech was ill-judged, poorly planned, chaotic. But I sense something else. 
through the 20 seconds or so of shuffling the papers and saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I don't think the Boris of old, and, and I do know he's been under the weather for the last week, and I understand that, but the Boris of old would have managed to laugh his way through it. And I just wondered yesterday whether what we were seeing was somebody who's beginning to lose their confidence. And it happens to people, it happens to sports people, it happens to business people, it happens to people in politics. I felt yesterday was the first sign that his confidence had gone. Now, this is a man who has been in the news for a very long time, some decades, and he's been through many tough times before. Oh, he's been sacked several times, sacked from publications, sacked from office. It's happened regularly to Boris Johnson. And goodness gracious me, he's been through his fair share of scandals. And yet, he's always managed to come back. And every time he comes back, he seems to have an even bigger job uh, than he had before. But today, the stakes are higher. Today, the pressure is greater. Can Boris now bounce back? Is there some big, dramatic reset planned within the next couple of weeks? I have to say, personally, I do rather doubt it. Love to know what you think. Please, gbviews at gbnews.uk and at gbnews on Twitter. Do tell me what you think. And also, of course, you can send in your Barrage, the Farage questions for the end of the show. Well, with me now is former Downing Street advisor and political commentator Tim Montgomery. Tim, a man who, if we cut through the centre of you like a stick of rock, it says Conservative right through the middle of you. You love the party, you believe in the party, uh, you want to see it do well, you know all of the key players. Um, what's your analysis of where Boris is Personally, I mean, there was, a, there was that question from a reporter. How are you, Mr Johnson? Mm. What's your analysis, Tim, of where he is personally and where he is, please, within the party? Good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Well, um, I think you asking the question in the terms that you have is absolutely spot on, asking how he is personally. Um, and I don't want to dwell on the individual characters, particularly in this, but if you go from a setup where you were effectively married to someone who knew you for a number of years, who almost acted as your mother as well as your wife in many respects, that's Boris Johnson's former wife, Marina Wheeler, who I got to know quite well um, over a number of years when I was working um, as sort of private advisor to uh, Boris Johnson. You go from that setup and you. Uh, form a relationship with a much younger uh, woman who doesn't know you so well. You become estranged from your children. Now, that's enough for anyone to go through that kind of upheaval when their rest of their life, their job is on a sort of a, a routine path, if you like. But to take all of that on, to lose that rock of stability in your personal life, to move to a very much more volatile situation, young children on the way, and you become prime minister at a time when big issues like Brexit and COVID um, have to be handled. I think your question is absolutely the right starting point. It's the chaos in the 
behind the scenes in Downing Street, before you get to anything else, before you get to the quality of advisors, whether he's surrounded by too many yes people, I don't think you can begin to understand what's going wrong if you don't, first of all, reflect on the enormity of that. Yeah, and of course, Tim, he had COVID very badly. He was really genuinely very seriously ill. Um, yep. I also noticed, I mean, there was this big, few months ago, Boris, you know, I've given up the booze, I've given up cheese, pictures of him out running and cycling and losing weight, and he seemed yesterday to have put a back on, I thought, a substantial amount of weight. Yeah, well, um, all of us struggle a little bit with um, weight in, at various times. And yes, it is hard to to lose weight. And I suspect, you know, the pressures that he's under, comfort eating is a natural thing mm. um, as well. Yes, so it's an added pressure when there are enough pressures upon him already. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm not gloating over his, his uh, discomfort uh, in any way, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think he looks... I thought yesterday he looked slightly troubled. I thought his confidence had gone ever so slightly. There's no way, Tim, the Boris that you've known for years, if he'd lost his place in a speech, he would have turned that into the most enormous joke, wouldn't he? Yesterday... Yes, of course he would, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and we all know that we underperform when we're tired. And he, you, you mentioned his weight. I've mentioned his, um, you know, his personal circumstances. Yeah. Um, the estrangement from his children, which I think still persists. You know, they really, as often children do when a relationship breaks down, they take the side of their mother um, against the, the, you know, the, the father who's, who's walked out of the setup. Yeah. You take all of that and he just looks like a tired man. And, you know, to be prime minister, to be leader of the country is difficult at any time, but it's particularly difficult at the moment, given the scale of the various challenges that, that we face. And it's it's made harder. Let's put all that just aside for one minute. I think it's the most important explanation of what we're facing. But then you sort of add in the fact that he's got a fairly lightweight cabinet. He hasn't got the biggest beasts of the Conservative Party inside his team. Both you and I supported Brexit. I thought the decision to get rid of the anti-Brexit ministers at the time of um, the autumn of 2019 was the right decision. You couldn't continue to have ministers at the top of government thwarting the will of the people. But some of the people that were dumped at that time should, I think, now have been brought back into government. I think we should have had some of the big beasts of government back at the top table helping the government navigate these difficult times. And instead, I'm afraid we still have a lot of people who just don't have the experience no, of government that these no. challenging times demand. And they're non-entities, many of them. I mean, they really, really... Are. I'm Tim, I think there's some real talent on the backbenches. And as you say, Brexit now within the Conservative Party pretty much a settled issue. So, yes, he should be looking for talent, for experience. Tim, he's been through bad times before sackings, scandals. He's been through the lot. He, he's yep. managed in the past to emerge through it all with a laugh and a smile. He's brushed it all off. Uh, and he always comes back to a higher, bigger, better office in some way. This time, and given that there are elements of the Parliamentary Party that are now not very far away from being mutinous, given that a significant chunk of the press is now asking some pretty hard questions, given 
the problems that are mounting up for him, uh, the cross-channel crisis, uh, the economy, you name it. This time, in your opinion, can Boris bounce back? Oh, Nigel, Nigel, I, I didn't predict Brexit would happen. I didn't predict that Trump would be elected. I didn't predict that Corbyn would become leader of the Labour Party. Don't ask me to do predictions, but <laughs> let, me, let, me answer, let me answer your question in this way. Um, I think um, Boris is such still a political commodity that he can win the next election. I think Keir Starmer is still so weak that Labour's absent in Scotland. But go back to where you began, the shambles in the government. Yeah. The last time the Conservatives had a majority of this size was the 1980s. I don't care much about the next general election at the moment. I care about the fact that we are wasting this parliamentary majority of 80. We could be using this to reform the public services, to simplify okay. the tax system, but, but to begin to ensure that Tim. parents get the education that their children but want. And we are zigzagging through this time. Isn't this and that, that's what isn't infuriates me. But this Sorry. is because of, this is because of a lack of leadership from Boris Johnson. The, the yeah. government's the government's drifting. Absolutely, and so right. yes, he's an election winner. But the problem is, we've always we knew he was an election winner. He's always had that gift. The question has always been, is he a capable prime minister as well? And that's what the great frustration is. Month by month by month, I'm afraid the answer to that question has to be no. Can he turn around that? That's the question I hope the answer to is yes. I increasingly fear it's no. Tim Montgomery, thank you very much. And that indeed is the question we're asking our audience to answer tonight. Thank you for joining us here on GB News again. Good to see you. Now, the pressure on Kent County Council has been enormous. As we know, we've documented this all week, very large numbers of people illegally crossing the English Channel, including some children. As a percentage, it's tiny, but still a real problem. Kent Social Services completely overwhelmed and having to put children into hotels, not an ideal situation. So the government overnight have decided to change the system and they are effectively going to allocate numbers of migrant children to councils around the country, giving them a couple of weeks to appeal back against this if they want to. And I, you know, Kent County Council, Roger Goff in charge of the council, he was delighted this morning about this, and I'm not surprised. But how does the rest of the country feel about this? Well, I want to go back up to Sunderland in the northeast, and there's a reason for that. There are 17 times more migrants overall being settled in the northeast of England than are being settled in the southeast of England. So, in a sense, the Channel crisis is now being felt in virtually every town across the country. So let's go to Sunderland and speak to some local officials up there. And I'm hoping to be joined by Paul Donaghy, councillor for Washington South Ward in Sunderland. Paul, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. And I'm also joined by Sam Johnson, councillor, again on Sunderland City Council for St Peter's Ward. Sam, let's begin with you. So the government are saying to you, you must take some of these children. Uh, but on top of that, you know, there are hotels, there are private residences in Sunderland uh, that are currently housing people who've recently come across the channel. As a local councillor, Sam, are you happy with that? 
Yes, I think, you know, when people arrive in this country, we have a responsibility to look after them and take care of them. We can't just leave them to fend their own devices. But we must be clear here still, we're talking about very small numbers. You know, the last estimate of the number of asylum seekers in Sunderland was 400, which is a percentage of the population is very low. And I think we have the responsibility to look after those people. And we also have the capability to do it. And you'd be perfectly happy then, Sam, if next year it's another 1,000, because it still would be quite a low percentage, yeah? I think, you know, 1,000, again, is quite a low percentage. But what we have to talk okay. about, again, is, you know, there isn't the latest announcement you're talking about from the government last night said quite clearly it was talking about unaccompanied children. Yes. And it said that local authorities would not have to accept any children once their number of unaccompanied children reached 0.07% of their overall child population. So let's be clear, despite the announcement, we're still talking about very small numbers that can be managed by top-tier local authorities. I accept that point. In terms of the sheer numbers of children, it is a small number, but there is a bigger issue going on here. And, you know, Sam, as you know, uh, the numbers that are across the channel illegally so far this year are treble what they were last year with no sign of this problem easing. Let's get Paul Donahue's opinion on this. Paul, uh, you know, it's a very small number of children um, and even the 400 uh, people who are claiming asylum that are currently being put up at the taxpayers' expense in Sunderland is such a low percentage that you really shouldn't be worried about it. How do you feel on that? Personally, we need to be prioritising our local residents first. We've got homeless in Sunderland. We've got a homeless charity called uh, Sunderland Community Soup Kitchen, who feed on average 25 to 30 people a night. We need to look after their, our own residents first. Priority should be given to local residents. I know families who've got four or five children who've been told by the local authority to, to use their dining room, to use their sitting room as a, a second or third bedroom. Um, I understand children need to be taken care of. And Sam is right, we have got a duty of care to take care of these children. But some of these children, we're talking about 14, 15-year-olds, and we can't verify the age. To me, that's a security issue. If you put these children into our system, you have to be able to identify who they are. We've got to take care of our own children. I understand the point that we need to take care of these people, but we need to make sure we know who they are as well. Well, that is, of course, the big security point and, and, and the thing that really I'm furious about, and this doesn't apply to the children, but, but, but you know, the huge number of undocumented young males that are coming into the country is a big security issue. But, Sam, back to you. Back to you. I mean, depending how you measure these things, but, you know, the government figures suggest that up to 37% of children living in Sunderland are living at or below what would be known as the poverty line, and that there is a very substantial weight in Sunderland, in the North East, as there is across the country, uh, to get on the council housing list. Do you understand why? Uh, you know, uncontrolled numbers, and albeit you may say it's small in percentage terms, but do you understand why uncontrolled numbers of people coming into the country, living here year after year, claiming asylum, and even when they fail being allowed to stay, can you understand why people are getting upset about this? Absolutely, absolutely. And let's be clear, for all I'm saying we're talking about small percentages, that doesn't mean we can't not control the border. And I'm glad the government now, through agreeing a new deal with the French, are looking to control this. But 
Yeah, they are. Yeah. I, I, I can promise. Sam, how many times have we heard that? Look, the, well, the, the, the fact of the matter is we are reliant on the French to pull their weight. This government is trying to control it. And they understand as well that local residents in Sunderland, in any town across the country, do face their own problems. They do need housing and they do need support themselves from local authorities. And that's why the government is trying to get it under control. And it's why, as local councillors, Paul is right, we must be privy as well to the needs of our residents and make sure that they are looked after by the authority that they are paying their council tax to. All right. And, Paul, a final word to you. Are you as optimistic as Sam that the government have got to deal with the French and that these problems are going to ease quickly? Personally, I wouldn't be paying France a penny. France have got to stick to their side of the bargain. France need to do more on their own borders to stop the migrants coming through in the first place. We need to stop the incentives. We need to stop the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you will, that the, the migrants are coming here to get. We need to, to, to knock that on the head. And France need to pull away. I wouldn't give France a, a penny until right. they Gentlemen, pull the finger thank, out. Thank you. thank you for that debate. Sam Johnson, Paul Donaghy, two Conservative councillors, they're on Sunderland Council, and in a way, the difference of opinion between them perhaps sums up the problem that the Conservative Party at a national level has got. They are very, very deeply split on this issue and how to deal with it. After the break, the Brit Awards will be dropping gender categories. Is that really a good thing for performing artists? Does it actually make sense? Can Boris bounce back is my question today. One viewer says the only way Boris could bounce back is if he actually starts being a conservative. Goodness gracious me, wash your mouth out with soap and water. Paul on Twitter says, yes, he can. He delivered Brexit, something other, every other PM failed to do. Trev says, nope. He is about as much use as a man wearing glasses with one ear. Another viewer on Twitter says, hopefully he will. I like Boris and he's making it difficult to carry on with good faith in the gen. Well, let's see whether he does. Douglas says he couldn't bounce a ball after yesterday's ultimate performance. And Vinoda finally says he doesn't realise he is falling back. He has lost his marbles. Well, I don't think he's lost his marbles but he might just have lost his confidence, I think. Now, the Brit Awards have decided that they're now going to be gender neutral. There'll be no best male artist, there'll be no best female artist. And I assume this is being done because of the absolutely minute percentage of people who describe themselves as non-binary. Does it make sense? As with many other debates in society, does it make sense that the majority have to bend to the will of the minority. I'm not sure it does. Joining me to discuss this is Russell C. Brennan, multi-platform artist, cutting-edge producer, who has previously been nominated for a Brit Award himself. Russell, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Um, I suppose in many ways this announcement did not come as a surprise. No, I mean, as you know, with the world culture, they're always trying to change things, like you say, to the minority. But I'm a bit surprised the music business has stood for it, though, considering the way they think. Yeah, and you've because... got sort of Adele and Ed Sheeran, and she would have been up for the best you know, female artist and he the best male artist. I mean, 
What do the performers think about this? I mean, the performers are going to be livid, a lot of them, but they want to see more kind of politically correct so they're not going to complain. The record companies similar, similarly aren't going to be happy because it, they're shooting themselves in the foot, whereas before they used, could get two awards, one for the male, one for the male. It helps the other artist's career. Now they're only going to get one instead of two. That cuts half the possibilities of promoting other artists uh, to get an award, and that's not going to help their career. And, of course, like you said, it's going to be irrelevant this year, really, because Adele's going to win everything. So I, I wouldn't like to be a new male artist come along, just done a brilliant album. Sorry, you, you're not going to win. And, Russell, as you say, such is the tide of political correctness. Such is the amount of abuse people receive on Twitter if they dare stand up for the idea of a man and a woman that this will just happen and people will mutter under their breath and nobody will complain and nothing will change. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for uh, what's going to happen is what's happened in America. I mean, I, I produced, I've had like 400 releases and vast majority for a female artist. I'm very pro-female artists. And yeah. what's happening in America is the males are starting to win and the females are getting left behind again, which is, we've just made a lot of progress for females. And that's, in, instead of them both getting equal recognition, now they're going to start, oh, well, we bet the male's going to win and the females doesn't get the chance they would have got. So actually, so actually, it becomes self-defeating, as you say, doesn't it? So it, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If, if if we finish up with males winning again, females not doing well, what have we achieved? Russell, thank you for joining us and for very frankly putting over your point of view. I thought what Russell said was very interesting, that because of political correctness, you know, many performers will think this is wrong, but nobody will dare say a word. Well, also with me, to discuss this is campaigner Peter Tatchell, LGBTI campaigner. Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Now, I know you've campaigned for decades for equality and fairness, uh, and you've done some pretty remarkable work. Um, I especially enjoyed your campaign against the late Robert Mugabe. So you're a lifelong campaigner. Aren't we going just a bit too far with all of this? Well, I think what this new revised category uh, does is really create the greatest or the best artist, regardless of sex or gender. I think that's good. You know, I think it's um, not, I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that we divide people on the basis of male and female. Um, you know, male and female is a reality, of course, and I accept that. But I just think it, 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 it's Good. going to be great to have, you know, the greatest, the best performer at the Brits, uh, regardless of whether they're male or female. My only concern is what we've just heard from the other guests. I just wonder if maybe this might lead to um, male performers uh, taking most of the, 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 the key points and ending up you know, the, the, the best artist, you know, too often being male and, and female artists being left out. Yeah, I mean, he did make that point, Russell, with some passion, didn't he? And wouldn't it be ironic if a couple of years down the road, you know, his prediction and your fear comes true, and so we finish up having quotas for female and quotas for male, and we actually finish up back where we started and wonder why we bothered? Well, yeah, I, I think the way around it that I'd see is, is let's have a ca category, the best artist, which is open to everyone. 
male, female, non-binary, trans. But then let's keep the categories of male and female, and perhaps even have a new category of non-binary to accommodate you know, singers like Sam Smith. That would, yes. uh, that would, I hope, satisfy everyone. Yeah, well, you know, we could do that, um, Peter. But, I mean, if you had a non-binary category, there wouldn't be many entrants, would there? Well, not as many as male and female, that's true. But, but well, there but are... Well, nowhere as many. Nowhere near as many. And, of course, it wouldn't have the same prestige as the best artist or even the best male artist or best female artist. But it would still accommodate those people and... Um, I don't see why not, you know, the the music industry can afford to give it another award. I mean, under the current proposals, they're actually cutting down the number of awards yeah. and diminishing the opportunities for artists, whether they're male or female. I don't think that's very good at all. And is it fair to say, you know, beyond this question of the Brit Awards, that actually what some campaigners are trying to do is to destroy the very basis of a difference between males and females on this earth, and that's actually a deeply unhealthy thing to do. I don't think that's the intention. I think the intention is to find the best artist, the, the no, best I meant, artist. But Peter, I meant generally within society, beyond the Brit Awards, you know, there is this attack, isn't there, on the very concept of people describing themselves as male, female, that somehow there should be some sort of you know, different, new creation, a new sexual identity for human beings where we don't... where we don't praise male values, we don't praise female values. Isn't there something unhealthy and wrong with that? Well, I think certainly male and female are biological realities. We can't get away from that. OK, good. Um, I, I think also, though, we shouldn't... I think we too often, or many of us too often, look at other people through the lens of he's male, she's female, rather than that person is a human being. That person is not... What's key to that person is not their sex or gender identity. It's yep. the fact they are a human being. And I think, you know, it'd be good, I think, and positive to get away from too much obsession about male and female. Well, of course, that's a reality, but, but when it comes to <laughs> award and and, and uh, uh, events and so on, I think, you know, the gender division is, is not always very helpful. I think it's, it's, it, it can be divisive. Peter? I don't want to put male, men, men against women. I want us all to be working together. Peter, we'll discuss this again, because I know this issue is not going away. Thank you very much indeed for joining me tonight here on GB News. And one little bit of good news. I told you a couple of weeks ago that I'd put myself forward to do a charity event up in the northwest, and it had been cancelled. The rugby club, Preston Grasshoppers, bombarded by the extreme left on social media. They cancelled me in fear. Well, I'm very, very pleased to say that AFC Filed have decided they will host me on the 21st of December at 7.30pm, and I will do that event for a good local charity. I have been uncancelled. How about that? A little victory just goes to show, just goes to show common sense does still exist. In a moment, I'm talking pints with Lawrence Kenwright. The GB News pub is open, thank goodness for that. It's talking pints and I'm joined by Lawrence Kenwright from Liverpool. Hotelier, entrepreneur, cheers. 
Cheers. Welcome. Reading through your life history, Lawrence, reminded me a bit of the Frank Sinatra song. <laughs> That's life. You know, riding high Walking in April, down. shot down in May. <laughs> and you've lived this amazing roller coaster. Sure. Uh, and we, we're going to get on and talk about Signature Living, this extraordinary hotel concept that you've got, which clearly is very successful, though the pandemic and the lockdown didn't make it easy. No. But you started in pretty humble beginnings mm -hmm. in, in Walton. Um, you dropped out of school, even though you could have done well. And you began shoveling manure. This was your first job. It was. Well, at the time, um, we had a bit of a debacle going on between uh, Derek Hatton and Margaret Thatcher. I remember, yeah. And so do I. Yeah. So I left school at the tender age of 15, before my exams, uh, because, you know, son of a doctor, my dad said, just get a job, any job. So I ended up shoveling, full as air. Um, but Liverpool at the time was um, on a real low. Um, and if you'd have said to me, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago, that Liverpool would be a top five tourist destination, um, I'd have laughed. And I think everyone else that I knew would have laughed. Uh, but at that time, when I was 15 or 16, shoveling full as earth, um, with 100,000 people leaving Liverpool because they couldn't find a job. Yeah. You know, Liverpool was, in was a very, it? very serious uh, Boys from the Black Staff, give us a job, give us a, give us a give job, us a and job, all that. Yeah. 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 And, and it was seen to be a very bleak place. It didn't seem to be, it was. It was a, a horrendous place to get a job. It was a horrendous place to try and carve out some form of career. You know, I'm son of a docker, son of a coat worker. Uh, my dad lost his leg very early on. Um, so we lived on invalidity benefits for many, many years. So to get a job was just the, the, the yeah. epitome of your life, you know, to get a job. So you get a job, you get on the ladder, you become a van lad, you... And, and where, where does this... Where does this entrepreneurial flair that you've developed come from? I think fear of failure is probably the main track to ensure... But how did you get started? If you, I mean, because I, you know... There must be lots of people out there, young people out there today, who think, how? What do I do? What, 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 how do you start? Well, I think you, you've got to be born with a certain amount of tenacity because it's, it's like, you know, you, you, you start off, you try and raise funds. It's really difficult to raise funds, especially in Liverpool 20, 30 years ago. But then once you start to gain some traction, and, and with me, it was taking on an apartment and then going to two, then to three, and then gaining a great opportunity with all deadly so buildings. Borrowing money, borrowing money. Well, Liverpool is, is a strange place. That Liverpool obviously had that debacle with um, the fallout between yeah. Hatton and, and Thatcher. But what happened to Liverpool was it was then bereft of funding for many, many years. And that funding went to lead to Manchester and didn't come to Liverpool. So Liverpool was left with all of the old listed buildings that were knocked down in Leeds and Manchester to make way for their gregarious buildings that they put up. Liverpool actually then... Uh, had a huge benefit of using those stunning, amazing buildings. So Liverpool now, top five tourist destination that it is. I mean, the Victorians built Liverpool beautifully. All, all, all built on the Victorians, uh, but left to fall into severe dereliction. Yeah. So I came along not truly understanding the development world, but, but really understanding how to turn a dedelict building into a commercial entity. Um, by giving it a new set of clothes. It was never meant to be a hotel. But it's very, very difficult when you've got a great two star listed building that was built to be an office block, mm. but then try and turn it into a hotel. So then you have Why all hotels? hotels. Why hotels? Um, I think, well, I've done apartments and I've done hotels, but hotels because 
there is not just only a bricks and mortar valuation to hotel, but there's also an EBITDA valuation to hotel. So the multiplication of profits uh, would give a better valuation to the overall building. But you have the added complication of having to trade it, which obviously brings yep. its own complication. Yeah. So you start to build everything up, you start to build a property empire, then it all goes wrong again. Well, you know, when, when you go into, um, I, I think the start of, of it all going wrong for me was, was Brexit. So that's when it really went wrong for me. Um, because? Well, obviously the, the country voted to, to leave, um, and I absolutely agree with that. I think where we made a huge mistake as politicians is that we had the House of Parliament going against government. And that spelled um, a disaster to the income and investors that come so into the country. So three and a half years of, 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 of effectively Parliament not honouring the result. Well, it was cascading onwards, wasn't it? So th that noise got more and more sinister as time went on. And as Parliament went against government, I think it was in the August, um, it was literally like you could hear the screeching of the brakes of the money stopping to come into the country. Mm. And, you know, we're a small country, aren't we? But we're a massive fundraiser. You know, a lot of money gets parked in this yeah. country. Yeah. That stopped pretty much overnight, until the election was won on the 12th or the 13th of yeah. December. When that happened then, it was, well, everyone's away. So in January, don't worry, the money's going to start coming in again. And then something happens. And then we have the pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, and that derailed everyone, because that was originally, uh, let's not worry about it, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, three weeks' time, we're, we're going to open up again. And I had a lot of fractional ownership partners, five or six hundred of them, right round the country, right, right round the world. And um, some of them um, didn't want to listen, um, didn't want to wait until we opened up again. So we, we had to put part of the business to administration. Yeah. Um, but luckily for us, when we opened on the, on the 4th of July again, uh, we decided that tourism wasn't going to be here because the streets were bare. So we, instead of having a hotel a standard hotel room, we then started selling events with beds. So then we started putting, um, say, three or 400 people on the roof of, of the Shankly Hotel site. Yeah. Uh, and those people then, who clearly, would be local... Clearly a Liverpool, a, a Liverpool supporter. No, I'm an Everton supporter. Are you? Well, why the Shankly Hotel, then? Uh, because that's where the money was. <laughs> <laughs> on Cats out of the bag, I tell you. <laughs> no, but if Liverpool, if Liverpool win, the city... Um, absolutely flourishes, you know, um, and certainly when they win the league and European yeah. Cups. Sadly, as a blue, um, yeah. that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> uh, as a scouser, first and foremost, um, I'm all about the city doing well. Yeah, so you create big roof terror. So you almost become a lifestyle. Yeah. As opposed to where a commercial traveller stays or whatever it is. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at a clip um, of, the sort of, of, of the sort of hotel rooms that you've got going now because they are here we are the cave talk us through this so the, the look caves at look at this it's extraordinary that's a basement um cluster of rooms which has one room in there that has 28 beds but you know it's sold out for 12 months in advance every weekend go 28 beds in one room 28 bed spaces so 14 double beds right so, what kind of events take place there, Lawrence Kenwright? <laughs> you will be getting invited to. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the world's changed. So, hotels, um, like Liverpool's got 9,000 beds. Uh, and if you have one or two people going to those hotels, then they're the experts for that. Anything over that, we feel we're the experts. And if you look at social media and the fact now that there are more groups than ever before because we are socially connected... And if you think we're super connected now, we're going to be super, super connected in the future. 
So therefore, that super connectivity brings about more friendships, more... more. So let's just say um, hen parties coming on yep. um, and, 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 and the lady puts out on, on her social media, hi, guys, uh, I'm having a hen party in Liverpool, whenever it's going to be. And before you know it, you've got people from university you haven't seen for 10 years, but they don't want to come on their own, they want to come with two of the mates. So then someone else wants to come. And it's really strange when you see them all coming together for the first time, but they're sharing the same room. So there's a shift of what's acceptable and what's not. So our main competitor really is someone like Travelodge, because that's where most of the groups go to. Yeah. But we're not selling a bed anymore. Well, you look much more exciting than Travelodge, so you've got to tell so, it. So we're not but... selling a bed, we're selling an experience. And a, what we call a boastful play. So every room, I'm going to get a bit complicated here, every room's got three sharp edges. The sharp edges lead to a backdrop for their picture to go on their social media. We know they'll naturally navigate towards those... And, of course, the social media brings the more business in and... In a peer-to-peer -peer way. So, rather than me going on TV saying, hi, guys, have you seen my hotel rooms? Well, you're going to say, well, you, you can't say that. That's being commercial. What we're doing here is we're allowing or wanting the customers to boast about their stay, yeah. which jumps into the garden of acceptability, which means that they're going to want to stay, irrespective of whatever says on TripAdvisor... It must get out of control sometimes, a kind of situation like that. No, it doesn't. Um, so uh, every uh, group that comes in, there's, a, there's one guest that has to give us their credit card. Right. So yeah. if so any damage goes wrong, or... Yeah. So that, they tend to be like the policemen within that room, so that doesn't really happen that much. So lockdown over, let's hope we're not going back. Parts of Europe are, which is quite scary to watch. Um, you must be making a fortune with this. Well, I think, I think we've got a bit of a winter of discontent because a lot of people don't really, you know, want to come out now. There's, there's still the older age groups that are a little bit, still a bit worried about yeah, coming out. Yeah. So your midweek punter's not there. Your weekend is, we're 100% every weekend, but we yeah. used to be 85% during the week. Now we're about 70% during the week. So it has come down. We're doing far better than anyone else. So a lot of those main brand hotels that are out there that are waiting for their business users to come back, but now they're Zooming. So if you've got somewhere like Manchester yeah. and London, their midweek uh, and their rev part is the same as their weekend. Midweek, same as weekend, because they have a huge uh, amount of businessmen wanting to use their hotels during the yeah. week. Yeah. Liverpool's never had that. Liverpool lost that battle to Manchester a long time ago. Manchester have the main offices. Yeah. Liverpool yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. it. So Liverpool's become a tourist destination. A leisure destination. And, yeah. and they become well, the, the... Well, the I must come and visit. It, this is remarkable. It looks amazing. It looks like fun. Well, you're more than welcome to come and visit the Shankly whenever you wish. Well, I look forward to it, because the previous mayor of Liverpool, Joe Anderson, said I, I wouldn't be welcome to set foot in the city, but I can come to your hotel, yeah? Yeah, of course you can. Well, that was Lawrence Canwright, and I think he's, he's reinvented hotels in just the most extraordinary way, and we thank him for coming on Talking Pines. <laughs> We are coming towards the end of the show. It is now time for Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. I do not get previous sight of them. So, here goes. Nick and Katie ask, there are rumours you are coming back to politics. Can you confirm or deny this? All I said was that on the Channel Migrant Crisis, I predicted this 20 months ago. I told the government we were headed for a huge national problem and now a huge security problem for our country and they have done nothing about it, and I've kept warning and warning and warning. And sure enough, it's now the number one issue in British politics, and it's put the government in big trouble. All I've said is there are people, donors, members of the public, urging me 
to get back into politics, to get back into that arena. I did it for 25 years. I'm enjoying very much being here at GB News, you know, a brand new TV station that wants to try and change public debate in this country. And that, I think, is very, very important. Um, never say never. You know, never say never. My gut instinct is not to go back into politics, but I can never say never. Who knows how bad this crisis may get. Rich asks me on GB Views, have you ever been to Peppa Pig World? No, I've never been to Peppa Pig World. Um, you've been to Peppa Pig World, Lawrence? No, he's never been. I mean, it was odd, wasn't it, that Boris chose somewhere in Hampshire to talk to an audience in the North East about, which shows you just how out of touch he is. Alan asks, do you think the UK will ever have a fairer voting system than first past the post. The trouble with this country is to get any change through is difficult because the establishment status quo don't want change. First past the post for me is bankrupt. It belongs back in the 19th century. We need something much more reflective of the way people vote. And if we did that, we'd engage a lot more people, particularly young people, I think, into the system. Last question. Mike asks me, would the HS2 and foreign aid money be better spent on defence and border control? Yes, yes, yes. HS2. The only bit that was of any value was the bit from Birmingham up through the East Midlands, up through the Leeds. But that's the bit they're not going to build. So there we are. We are done for today. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow.